You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Hey, Crime Writers On fans and S-Town fans, how about tuning into a podcast where there's some real in-depth discussion of stories? What is this, 1990 that came out? He is sporting a jerry curl that could make Lionel <laughs> Richie jealous. Be sure to check out These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. My one disappointment with this episode was that there wasn't a good iced tea looks like. But, <laughs> but, what do you mean by that? Well, a good SVU is like, looks like the captain went down with the shit. <laughs> Each episode, we look at a case from SVU, Criminal Intent, or Original Recipe, and talk about the real-life, ripped-from-the-headline stories that inspired the episodes. The way they're directed to just be like, someone was sexually assaulted? (laughs) (laughs) You are the lieutenant in charge of this division? Go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to These Other Stories right now. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on S-Town, episodes two, three, and four. That's right, in this episode we'll discuss chapters two, three, and four of the blockbuster spinoff of Serial that's got everyone talking. Yeah! And in our next episode, we'll break yeah. down episodes five, six, and seven. Buku and buku! <laughs> Joining me is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Howdy. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed PI, Laura Brick. Hello, Laura. Hello. And joining us is dystopian noir novelist and our favorite wet blanket of all time, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. War damn eagle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you just said, but I don't have time to get into it. We have three episodes of S-Town to talk about. I know. I was in such a rush, I took a piss in the sink. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is basically, you guys have noticed, a very lean and mean version of Crime Writers On. No chit-chat, no Amazon items, just straight to the content. We cannot make an exception tonight because we have three episodes of this incredible podcast to talk about. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about episode two first, and then we're going to talk about episodes three and four sort of as part of one discussion, all right? Okay. So let's talk about episode two, and um, I'm going to jump right to the end of the episode. Toby Ball. Where were you when you heard the last five minutes of episode two of S-Town? I think I was at my desk at work. And what happened? You know, I, for whatever reason, I didn't, like, it was surprising, but I wasn't shocked. Mm-hmm. Like, I went back and listened to episode two again, and there's, like, a little bit, like, he kind of gets you ready for it. Mm-hmm. Like, he does have that tattoo guy says that when uh, the first time that John came in to get tattoos... He thought that, you know, he was going to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And then... But John is still alive at that point when he's telling that story. Right. But it but it kind of sets up the... It foreshadows. Yeah, it, it foreshadows and it, it puts that out there because it's a strange thing to say. Mm-hmm. What do you think when that guy came in to get tattoos? Oh, he's going to commit suicide. And then uh, Brian says that, you know, somebody was going to die. And I think that even John talked a little bit about it. You know, I, I compared him to um, Confederacy of Dunces, mm-hmm. and you know the guy who wrote that committed suicide. Mm-hmm. It was definitely it was it was surprising, but it wasn't like a shock out of the blue. I guess. What about you, Laura? Where were you? How did you react when you heard the end of episode two? 
I think I was actually sitting in bed listening to it and I was like immediately like grabbed my phone and started Googling to see if I could find stories on when he died. And I'm like, you know, I guess it's a good thing I didn't try to read anything ahead of time about this um, because there was all sorts of stories about the fact that John, who was a central character, died in 2015. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think it started to make me wonder if, you know, I'm shocked and then I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe this whole there was a murder in this town wasn't even really the reason that John tried to get Brian down there. Maybe it was like, hey, I'm going to kill myself. But before I kill myself, I want to go out with spreading some raising awareness of all this shit town stuff that I'm upset about on a bigger platform than just in the shit town. Hmm. I was kind of wondering, like, what was maybe did his you know, the background of him uh, having depression, it sounds like for, you know, his entire life and these ongoing threats of killing himself. Did any of this sort of factor into why he actually contacted Brian? Right. Well, I'll tell you one of the things, and this is something that I didn't share with you guys. I have not done any reading about this story on purpose. Right. And full disclosure, I don't know about you guys. I have actually not listened to past episode four as of the taping of this podcast. No. I did uh, not either. Okay, yeah. we nope. so we're on the same we're page. Stop, so we can just and talk I about stopped. that. On, yeah, and I know it's making our audience who has listened to the whole thing crazy. I don't care. I don't want to be talking about something that I I didn't want it to be colored by having listened ahead. But the one listeners, detail, you have to be considerate of the other <laughs> listeners who have not caught up. No, I think it's also an interesting experiment for us to do it this way because we're all bingers. We're all very comfortable mm-hmm. with binging, and it's been a fun experiment for us to be disciplined in that way. This one's worth it. So I, I didn't know anything about this except when the trailer for S Town dropped, a listener emailed me and said. Oh, the voice you heard in the trailer was the voice of John B. McLemore. He committed suicide. He lives in my town. Here's his obituary. And I immediately just like shut the email and like put it away. Who were you? But in the back of my mind. Damn you. But in the back of my mind. So I kind of knew it was coming because of Mm -hmm. that email. I was still really taken aback by that piece of tape at the end of episode two. And then, of course, we'll talk about episode three. Not because of what happened, but because of the way it was delivered, that we got Brian's authentic, real-time reaction to getting the news. It felt like a gut punch to me because it was a gut punch to him. And he had done such a good job in episode two of putting you in his body, uh, you know, with the tattoo shop stuff and with all the stuff, the other stuff he did in the episode where you felt like you were with him. That for me, when I heard his reaction, I felt the reaction at the same time. I was on a walk in the woods and I had to stop. And just like stop and look around. It, it was really something. How about you, Kevin? Where were you? How'd you react? I was uh, sitting in the parking lot with the uh, engine running. Parking lot moment? Absolute parking lot moment. It clicked because in, they did tease out that someone else dies. So there's mm-hmm. somebody dies and there's buried treasure, right? And it was kind of as soon as I heard Skylar's voice. It, then it, it occurred to me that it was going to be that it was John and this is what this phone call was I think it was pretty serendipitous that he was recording the call it was so raw I mean I really felt for him and you know you could see that he genuinely had affection for this guy who by the way I would say up until that point 
really had not provided him with much of a story. Right. Other than he is a colorful character and I keep getting all these emails from him. And we see in these further episodes that John had that effect on a lot of people. Well, let's now go back to the beginning of episode two, because uh, the beginning, obviously, we're sort of getting Brian going to the town and sort of pursuing the story thread that John has handed him, which is the murder of this kid, Dylan Nichols, by this other kid, Cabram Burr. And, you know, one of the early scenes in the podcast episode is his visiting this tattoo shop, which is a community gathering point for misfits and ne'er-do-wells. I think it's okay for me to characterize them that way because that's how they characterize themselves and also they're they're ne'er-do-wells. I mean, I think it's pretty clear in the tape. One of the things that happens in that is that Brian is put in the position of having to set up what we're going to be hearing these people say, just the way that they talk in their regular vernacular, like amongst each other, the use of the N-word. They're sort of very, very high level of comfort with what I think the rest of us would call hate speech in other parts of the country. Brian does, I think, a very, very good job of setting that up to provide some context and comfort for us, not being apologetic, and describing why he's not interrupting them as they're saying that and saying like, hey, that's not cool, you can't say that kind of stuff. I thought that was a very clean and well-delivered part of the podcast that allowed the listener to look beyond the words coming out of these guys' mouths and actually listen to what they were saying, which is very, very, very difficult to do. What did you think about that, that section, Kevin? I did like that. I thought everybody was really interesting. It reminded me in some ways of the characters in Crime Town, Mm -hmm. how we're like, okay, they are in some ways very charming and some ways rather despicable and you kind of got the same thing they were just so colorful you know I mean I think Brian was very clear about you know that there was you know some hate speech there some he didn't he didn't have to turn it up to 11 to make us feel anything you just let he just put it out there you feel what you want about it and he doesn't get in the way of sort of this is what the scene is right and it all builds to okay boy it's all this kind of crazy place it builds to that scene that you just talked to at the end john why is this place really important john will come in and when they need money he gets a tattoo even though he hates tattoos well that's their theory about it toby what did you think of this this tattoo shop scene i mean it was it was a big part of episode two like there was a big scene setting you know sort of people character development section and also it's really the first time we start getting from other people what john's motivations and thinking might be i'm curious to know what your thoughts about the section of the podcast were it's a tough one in some ways because i think you know they come across as being I mean, they're certainly good friends to each other. I think they're they're looking out for each other, and like Kevin was saying, they're very colorful. But they're they're also they're racist as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of despicable, right? It's one of those tough ones where I think I think people who believe in things that you find to be like really abhorrent, but then when they can act in other ways, in ways which you know, I don't know if it seems admirable, but it seems fairly normal, mm-hmm. it kind of gives you that disconnect. So again, and I think it was even more so than with Crime Town, is that for me, there was, and I don't think, I, I think Brian did a great job by not like pushing this one way or the other, but it was sort of important for me to keep in mind, you're listening to this and you know these guys come across as somewhat sympathetic in their talking. At the same time, if Brian was a black guy, 
it would be a completely different situation. And, and they, you know, they talk about, you know, they say a whole bunch of racist stuff, and, and including not wanting to have black people come in and, right. and all this stuff. It makes it a little more complicated than easily being able to paint with a broad brush like you don't like them right. because they come across as being having some admirable qualities to each other. But, you know, they're racist. They're racist as hell. Would that be a surprise if I told you he goes down to small town Alabama, he meets a bunch of guys and they're racist? Is that a, well, is that an interesting plot twist or is really the point of that scene something greater than that that speaks to the story? I think well, so. Well, what, what do you think it speaks to? Well, I think I, like, I, at the end, I think it's like, what is this place, this weird outlier place, and why does John care about this place? Why are these people friends with John, of all people? The guy who's been going around talking about climate change. And how he and hates racism, And how he hates racism, And how he hates tattoos. And why would this place have anything to do with John B. McElmore? And then you find out. And Tyler. Tyler is the key. And also the things that we suspect or they suspect John is doing to keep that place going. Right. I think that's the interesting thing. I mean, you're right. They're racist. That wasn't a big surprise. We're not asked to root for them at no. all. Yeah. They're, they're, no. they're advancing the narrative. And I, this is what I think was so good yeah. about the writing in this section. Laura, what do you think? Well, you know, I was like, okay, these guys are obviously very racist, but I don't know, it was something about when I was listening to it, I I actually kind of just like pushed that aside because I was more interested in the dynamic between the people there and John and Tyler. And I knew that there was this like, God, this this is pretty, you know, offensive, but I'm also like, not to stereo this is like redneck Alabama so I'm really not surprised that this is how I mean this is what they know I mean this is is the cultural thing so I was more kind of drawn into like this sort of the like you were saying kind of the story of like it's almost like John is seeking out the people that he thinks contribute the most to what he calls like the shit town kind of philosophy and trying through his own way help them and change them and maybe show them a different way let me just, like, having spent time in Alabama, just say that I think you probably could have gone to that town and found a group of guys hanging out who, who weren't crazed racists. Right. I think it's hard to paint, like, rural Alabama as everybody you're going to run into as a racist. Right, um, but not everybody in know, rural Alabama knew John. And this was his crowd. It was, the, it was a society yeah. of outsiders. Yeah. Well, the goal wasn't to but find I, well, racists. I think, it was I, I to give the flavor of that place. Right. Which right. is so different than what John is. Right. You have to, at the end, wonder, why does John care about these guys? As opposed, you know, he goes in and he talks to them and tells them that they're wrong, but he keeps going and spending money there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's because he, he thinks they're, you know, especially this guy, Tyler, like he's a victim of this whole thing right. that John finds so despicable and objectionable and causes him to despair. Mm-hmm. And that Tyler's sort of this this innocent who... Because, you know, his father was violent and he's grown up around racism and he went to Auschwitz High School and and all these other things, has the problems that he has, has the views that he has. You know, it seems that John is trying to address these issues that he sees in his community basically through trying to prop up Tyler and his brother. And that's the point of the... That's that's a part of the whole scene. I mean, I think what's interesting, too, one of the things that I loved about the scene was how Brian is very transparent about how when Caburn found out Caburn Burr's sister was there, he snuck out. You know, he was like, <laughs> I don't, I'm not interested in doing Are that Are we going to talk about that whole aspect well, of his investigation? Well, we're going to that part right now. Go That's ahead. What I was about book. to pivot right. to. Um, so what happens next, I mean, a lot of things happen in episode two. It was a very, very rich 
uh, detailed episode. I think a lot of what we hear in episode two comes to bear later. So maybe while listening to it, a lot of that detail it advances the narrative, but then when you go back and listen to it again, as I did, as Toby just said he did, you hear a lot of stuff that comes to bear later. So we hear Brian go to the KKK uh, <laughs> lumber yard, which, by the way, is what it's called, and um, talk to Cabram Burr, who is this guy that John has said committed this murder and had gotten away with. And there is this wonderful little section of writing that and this is something that if you're not a writer listeners you might not appreciate just like the power of a well-written short passage to convey so much but Laura I wanted to ask you about this because I wanted to know what you thought about it because it kind of reminded me of you where Brian describes how everybody seems to be completely willing to talk to him because they all have this attitude of well fuck it and it's, he calls it the, the fuck it attitude. <laughs> like, fuck it. Like, their assumption is that things are going to be shitty anyway. So nothing bad can happen if I actually had this honest conversation with this guy from New York with a microphone about a murder that I may or may <laughs> yeah. not have committed. What did you think of, of his description of that and then about that conversation with Kay Brim Burr that we that we heard? Well, it was it was interesting because it was just, I mean, it was definitely a window into something that, you know, I... You know, as I'm listening to this whole, you know, fuck it attitude and fuck it philosophy, I'm just like, wow. But I can understand it when you hear, you know, certain people and certain characters in this podcast talking. You're like, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I was just amazed that he walks in and Kabram's like, yeah, so buddy, what do you want to talk about? And just like, <laughs> you mean, I'm like, are you kidding me? He's just going to talk right now um, and, and then has this whole conversation. And you're like, huh, OK. As somebody who sometimes does have to put a microphone in someone's face and ask them questions, I mean, can you not confirm that, like, most people are actually not game for that at all? <laughs> no. You know, I, and I'll say th there's a difference. When I was working doing defense investigation, I encountered people more often that were willing to talk to me. And I think they probably had the fuck it philosophy, too. But it was like, well, you're not the cops. I'll talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, so I was always amazed in certain situations, the things that people would just agree to talk to me about. You know, as a reporter, it's it's a lot different. And sometimes you are approaching someone that you're like, oh, this person's never going to talk. And I had a bank robber one time when I was a reporter who called me up to go see him at the jail. And like he confessed and told me all about why he robbed the banks. Was Before, the guy dressed like, as a tree? No, That's no, this was a guy. So no. <laughs> no, he was not dressed as a tree. He was dressed as himself. And um, and it was all about his women troubles. But and that was no money, one of no those, problems. It was just bizarre because I went over there thinking like, yeah, this is going to be like this whole denial. And I get over there and this guy sits down and like confesses to me like I'm his priest. And then I ended up on the U.S. attorney's witness list. <laughs> Good times. <laughs> Good times. Yeah. So I, I was just amazed. But but it also made me think, again, like, well, wait a minute. So if we know now that this murder never took place, wh where is this story going? Right. What, what about you, Kevin? To pick up on Laura's point, you know, in the broadcast side of things, when you actually have a microphone and a microphone and a camera, I actually found that more often than not, people were willing to jump in. Because to a TV camera. To a TV camera. Right. Because there's something about that that, oh, yes, I would like to be on television. Mm -hmm. And having also had done radio before that, it, sometimes it was a little you know more difficult and you're trying to get somebody to perform. But I found that sometimes it was really surprising who would just jump right in. I mean, you go to like a, a house fire in the neighborhood and people coming out, you know, with no shirt on. <laughs> 
you know? Dressed in a gorilla suit. Dressed in a, in a, dress, a guy, <laughs> oh, that guy was my dressed favorite. in a gorilla suit. <laughs> we got to put that up on the on the website. <laughs> but I will say, I'm, I'm this little thing that I, I have to comment on about Brian's initial investigation, because I also literally was sent to Alabama to talk to people about a murder. I was told that I had to come back with something, <laughs> right? They it made a big deal about, we're putting you and a cameraman on a plane, and we're sending you down there. And yeah, not, but they've got and serial not, money. And, yeah, well, <laughs> and not like uh, you have to come back with something. You have to have, have something 18 months from now. It's like, you need something by 6 o'clock Eastern, mm-hmm. 5 o'clock Central, each of these nights you're down there. Meantime, Brian's like, I, I just can't imagine him having the conversation with Ira Glass, and Ira would be like, so Brian... um, <laughs> how was how was Alabama? You know, it, I don't know. I'm just I just didn't really find anything out. What did the police say? I, I didn't go to them. <laughs> I was too afraid. And, you know, <laughs> what did you mean? Well, the sister was there. I just I wasn't feeling it. <laughs> and I'm that's like really like you just. I think Brian is, and I think he demonstrates this at the end of this episode. He's a sensitive guy. Well, it's not just that. But you got to have serial money. No, to say, but yeah, I'm going to spend three years and not even ask. I don't think this is a far out theory. Okay, and I'm this. I'm just going to put it out there. I think that a lot of this tape that we are hearing in the final product of S Town was tape that he had that mm-hmm. fit what the story ended up being, and the story sort of grew from the tape that he had. I don't think that whatever he was doing there at the time warranted his talking to Kay Brimber's sister. I don't think, we don't know exactly why it was that he was at the tattoo shop. He could have been pursuing a different part of the John narrative. No, the John, be, I, John's I, suicide, I, to me, molded what this story ended up being. Right. Because you yeah. can hear all, the real investigative stuff where he tracks people down and is actually being sort of aggressive, it all happens post-suicide, which we'll talk about in episodes. Oh, yeah, the whole thing's crafted afterwards. But and he finds the tape that fits the... Right. Which is why now I understand the whole first episode. Right. Because it is a character study into John to see like where we're going. We've got to So imagine writing the narration. You yeah. know, So now you're a couple of years past when you're actually in the tattoo shop and you're writing the narration and you've explained you know that your first episode has been like, okay, so ostensibly he's telling about this murder, yada, yada, hook, yada. Yep. You're writing the narration and you realize, in retrospect, you know what? The sister was there and I was too much of a, excuse my language, pussy to talk to her. And just putting that in there. Like, we, we don't hear on tape that someone says that Kabram's sister is it. He volunteers that no. information. We hear all the guys saying, hey, what's go call? Come on, what are you? You're a puss. <laughs> exactly. You're a puss. But, I, but he didn't have to include that tape. No, he didn't. And no, that didn't. says something about him. That makes him really, really, for me, very likable. Go ahead, Laura. Oh, I was going to say, you know, first of all, I, I want to know more about the stripper pole. And <laughs> no one used it. And Not that the night. deer antler pot smoking. I, I need to know more about this. I want to know more about the secret wall. Yeah. Like, it's a clubhouse. It's like a speakeasy. Maybe it'd be easier yeah. to pay the bills at the tattoo parlor if you hadn't built that secret wall. <laughs> <laughs> the wall was fine. It's, it's the uh, hidden switch in the bust of... Of uh, the, William Shakespeare, in the like in Batman, yeah. Sing. So, so Toby, after Brian finds out, after talking to Cabron Bird, the murder never actually happened. We hear this phone call where he is all excited to report this information to John, and John is nonchalant about it. He's just like, "Oh, well, all right." And you know, we get a portrait at that point that John is depressed. <laughs> His issues are much bigger. He's actually depressed about the lack of outrage about the murder, not the actual murder himself. And that's where we get a whole lot, I think, of foreshadowing about 
John's level of depression and the way that he thinks global warming and so forth. And it's more global. What did you think hearing that phone call between Brian and John and Brian really trying, I think, to get his hands around describing it? Did you have concerns? Uh, yeah, I think I had fewer concerns about it then than I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you know, as Kevin was saying, I mean, the whole thing is basically a character sketch ending with his committing suicide. I guess what I thought about most, what was John thinking about when he contacted Brian or whoever he contacted to get their attention? What was his intention in getting people to come down? Because my my sense was that the murder, it's not even my sense. Like he basically says, like the murder, the murder doesn't mean a whole lot to him. Mm -hmm. And it's basically illustrative of like things he finds objectionable about where he lives. So in, to some extent, it's I want somebody to come down here and see what's going on down here. But I still, you know, what what was he expecting to have happen once a reporter showed up? I had my theories, but uh, I'm not sure that there's been a sort of definitive answer on that. Does that Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I don't know. I was just feeling very much like John always goes back to climate change as his like biggest global concern. And Brian points to that. Like the world is literally falling apart and nobody cares. And this is like the thing that hovers over everything that John talks about. And, you know, in some ways, you know, I don't want to get preaching in the podcast. It is amazing that we are all not talking about that all the time. <laughs> well, he's talking about it because he has a, a foreboding a sense of doom, yes. which is ultimately what leads him to kill himself. Right. Although there's more to it, but I mean, he's had the the suicide notes for, right. you know, for all this time. And I think when you look back at his glasses and half full, glasses and half empty, this glass is full of piss. Right. I mean, that informs part of the why he did it. Uh, I have a question for you, Kevin. Yeah. In this episode, we hear John piss in the sink as he's talking to Brian. <laughs> Yeah. And he tells him, I'm taking a piss in the sink, which, by the way, you can't hear on the phone. <laughs> yes. You mean he could have gotten away with it? Yeah. Um, I don't care what you think about the inclusion of that piece of tape. Yeah. I just want to know what you thought of that piece of tape. I was thinking, I hope there weren't any dishes in there like at my house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was also, really I'm something. thinking, he must be pretty tall. Yeah. Well, he said he's really good at aiming. And what do you say? My, my dick is little, so it's pretty amazing. I can bet I can make it to the center. I mean, he was very open about the whole process. <laughs> Laura, anyone do that in your house? No, but we do have issues with the porch outside. <laughs> it's good thing we don't have neighbors. <laughs> All right. So, of course, this episode wraps up with that devastating phone call that Brian calls Skylar back from the studio because he's received a message from her, finds out that John committed suicide, and it's sort of like, and scene right there. Mm-hmm. So, thus ends <laughs> S-Town Shit Town episode two. Now, I just want to pause right here because I think that our listeners who have, you know, listened this far and beyond and who were making fun of us earlier this week, we were only talking about episode one, knew this was coming. And I think this is a good point to say at this point in the series, where were you at? What grade would you have given the series at this point? And this episode is a standalone. What grade do you give it and why? So, Laura, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to go with B+. Plus. I, I loved all of the tattoo scenes, the secret door, the stripper pole, the characters. Um, the way that it ended, I felt, was like very, you know, it, it added suspense even the way that it ended with the announcing that he was dead. But I just, I'll go B+, plus because I was worried, like, where is this story going to go from here? And right. I know they have a plan, but I was like, 
Well, I'm not really sure where we're going. What about you, Toby? What do you think? I'd give it a strong A. You know, it was well-crafted. I think he was able to uh, efficiently, like not not through quick tape or whatever, but through what he played, give a, a pretty efficient and evocative picture of this aspect of John's life. So, yeah, I, I thought it was good. I agree. I also give episode two of uh, S-Town an A. I thought, as I was listening to the beginning parts with the pissing in the sink, with the scene at the <laughs> tattoo parlor, the writing and just crafting of, I really felt like something's going to happen. I felt the way that way the whole time. I felt like something was going to happen beyond the sort of Cabram Burr murder thing. Interview with Cabram Burr himself, I thought, was just outstanding, really well done. But mostly, you know, big kudos to Brian Reed and whoever edited this. I'm guessing it's Julie Snyder, I know, is, is one of the editors of the show, and so is Ira Glass. The writing in this episode, for me, really, really just blew away the writing I've heard in many, many, many pieces of media, especially media where a person from New York is going down and dealing with a bunch of crackers. Excuse the expression, but that's kind of what it felt like. He just handled it so deftly and so beautifully and made that an aside and let you really focus on the story. And I just thought it was beautifully done. And the end, I felt like I was being punched in the face. And that's a good feeling, you know, when you're listening to a piece of audio. What about you, Kevin? I'm giving it an A. Again, for the reasons that everybody had, I thought it was very strong. The writing was great. The, the scenes that were drawn were of so much color and so vivid and so important to a story that continues to build and you don't even realize it. This whole thing at the end about sundials and the things that they, the inscriptions and stuff, and I didn't even realize I was being set up for a death scene. And I thought it was really great in the end. I mean, very powerful, very brave, brave for for Brian to use that tape to show himself as that vulnerable. It picks up again in episode three. And it was also a way to sort of, if the the murder of Dylan Nichols is the MacGuffin that just sets this in motion. It is. I knew you were going to think that. Then it just sets us up for, okay, well now where does this go, even though you're totally shocked? And so we find out that there isn't really a killer. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you want to go hunt a killer, you can do it from your own armchair with Hunt a Killer. (laughs) What is an ad? Hunt a Killer is the murder mystery (laughs) subscription box service that delivers new clues to your doorstep every month. I've heard about this. I actually have too. Yeah. Yeah, so there's this story that unfolds via creepy correspondence. You get things like letters, articles, objects, and tools, all from a Hannibal Lecter-type killer Curator, Creepy. And what's interesting is also along with Hunt a Killer is there's this online community of folks that are working on the mystery together. So there's like some secret Facebook groups and podcasts and forums and, and live videos. And everybody's trying to figure out the whodunit. Can you technically call it secret if we're talking about it on our podcast? Well, I'm not telling you who's, <laughs> who's who and who's what. There's no Colonel Mustard, though. All you have to do is apply for membership at huntacillor.com. Now, they only let in a few hundred new members each month. Ooh, it's exclusive. Not just any detective can come in, so don't wait too long. And there are different subscription plans that you can choose from. Remember, Hunt a Killer also makes an incredible gift for the crime reader, mystery solver if they can get in. in your life. Yeah. <laughs> now, to help show our support, they've offered a 10% discount for our listeners. If you use the code WRITERS, you get 10% off. So head on over to HuntAKiller.com and register now. Come join the hunt. And use the code WRITERS. WRITERS. All right. Anything else, Kevin? 
Well, Rebecca, you know, remember that scene where the woman, they, just, they described, first it was the guy with one tooth yeah. who had the cigarette. <laughs> Balancing the Balancing cigarette. Balancing the right? Yeah. And, and John B. talking about the girl who had nothing on but the top and nothing beneath, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. She really needed a fashion makeover. She did. She did. And the way she could have gotten that was by subscribing to Le Tote. I'm loving Le Tote. Le Tote is the service that allows you to get new clothes and try them out. I know. And send them back. I know. I've been doing it. <laughs> oh. And let me talk about Le Tote, shall I? Yeah, you do a Look better job than I do. Look at the sweater fun. that I'm wearing right now. You got that from Le Tote. It is Le Tote. Basically, Le Tote is like having a community of like girlfriends with really good closets and getting a few items to borrow from them to try on and then send back. So basically, it's a fashion subscription box. It sends brand name clothing and accessories right to your door. You get to choose the items that are going to be in your Latote if you don't like what they picked for you. You can get as many as you want per month. So basically, like, you get this box... If you wear all the stuff in two days and send it back, like as soon as the postman scans the return label, like they're immediately sending you a new Latote. So you can go through like 10 of these in a month probably if There's you want to. as many totes as you want in a month. It's $39 a month. So you can, it's basically like renting a look. And then if you decide that you get something and you really love it, you can buy it and the price is like a huge discount because keep in mind like these are clothes that have been circulating they're beautifully dry clean they all seem brand new but you're basically part of this big borrowing network it's like going into your friend's closet it's like, and taking high, it's like affordable yeah. high fashion you can rent your look you feel clothes confident every day you get to wear stuff maybe you wouldn't have chosen for yourself you know Laura you know that feeling when you buy something new and you get up the next morning and you can't wait to wear it to work yes it's like absolutely. that you can have that all yes. the time with La Tote so all you have to do if you want to do this is what Kevin so go to letote.com that's le l-e tote t-o-t-e dot com and get started for as low as $39 a month and enter promo code crime and get 50% off your first month Fill out your style profile, sign up to get a custom tote delivered right to your door, wear what you want, return everything in the mail when you're done, and you'll get a new box within days. Again, that's letote.com. Enter our code CRIME and feel fabulous with fashion delivered right to your door. I love the easy return envelope. They actually do make it really easy. I like those scarves that you got. Letote.com, promo code CRIME. Well, I'd like to move on to episode three now of Shit Town, a.k.a. S-Town. Now, one of the things that happens in episode three is we hear about this sundial metaphor. Uh Now, John, in a passing remark to Brian, says tedious and brief, which he says is a sundial motto that apparently sundials, which John has also made in addition to repairing and making clocks, you know, they have their own sort of vernacular mottos imprinted on them. And then Brian goes through and reads a bunch of these mottos and then he says that in his own life he has come to discover these sundial mottos and they all basically refer to the fast passage of time and you're definitely going to die that's kind of what it all comes Mm -hmm. down to now toby you hated the clock metaphor at the beginning of episode one of s town and i'm starting to get a sneaking suspicion that it's more meaningful than just a literary metaphor so i was listening to this tedious and brief and this whole sundial stuff and i was thinking man toby is either gonna Love this or really, really hate it? So I'm, I'm curious to know your thoughts. I don't like it. I think both with the clock and with the sundial, like there's enough of a reason for that particular use of the metaphor or, or however you want to characterize how, they're, how it's being used. I'm going to push but back I, at you a little bit, Toby. Okay. John is literally a clockmaker. Like we find out in the next episode, which by the way, I'm giving us permission 
to talk about episodes three and four a little bit of as a continuum, we find out that he is a world-famous clock repairer. Don't you think if you're going to use these metaphors in one story that maybe you can give this one story a pass on the use of these metaphors? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I think it, I think it makes it less like... I don't know, hackneyed or whatever, but would he spend time if it was some other occupation he did? Like if he was making dartboards, would he be like, have something about how people don't always hit the mark all the time and <laughs> but the more they work on it, the better they get? Bullseye. You know, I, yeah, so I just, I kind of feel like the the writing, whoever's doing the writing on this is really good and I, I feel like these things kind of draw attention to themselves and to kind of cleverness they don't seem to me to be making a point that they're not making in a much more powerful way through just the normal narrative. If I, if I was editing this, I would be like, "What? why do we need this to tell this part of the story? There's so much, all this stuff is coming out in other ways through more sort of genuine interactions or, or descriptions of interactions that these kind of extended little bits about clock making and sundials and these sort of morbid little sayings they have on them, it seems like a little a little much. I mean, it's, it's like totally quibbling. It feels unsubtle compared right. to the rest of it, I guess. I think that John's occupation and the thing with the sundials, I mean, I think it just, it lends itself to this, the symbolism mm-hmm. of the story. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, you know, he played darts, it wouldn't. I mean, that would be really forcing, <laughs> right. th- forcing the issue. I, you know, I respect Toby's uh, take on that. I, I don't. We are all very I, respectful I, of oh, each yeah, other's of takes. That's the whole thing about of this course. podcast. No, of course. But I, I think I actually, I actually do like it. I've criticized other podcasts for being very precious in certain passages that are non sequiturs to the rest <laughs> of the story. Right. I, and I think that the prose is. Good. Mm-hmm. I think it's strong. It's direct, and I think it it fits with the theme and the tone of the story and where it's going. And when I've wondered about something in the past, there's a payoff about it in the future. Right. I don't think it's throwaway. Right. Well, but I, that's just where I am. I'm only halfway through this. I'm also going to say I know that I'm not as smart as Toby, nor have I read as many things as Toby has. He talks about hearing this over and over and over again, and I'm like, I actually learned something about the clock making in the sundials. <laughs> I didn't know because I've never heard it before. Um, I actually want to roll it back, though, and Laura, I'm going to go to you with this. You know, We hear at the beginning of episode three the full conversation between Brian and Skyler, pretty much the full conversation, where he is learning about John's suicide. She's giving him all these, you know, little details about what they're doing with John's mom and sort of the and we just hear Brian's reaction to the suicide really laid bare over a pretty protracted period of time with the podcast he doesn't come over it with narration and say I was really stunned blah 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 blah. we actually just hear how he felt in the moment and reacted at the time I found that part to be incredibly difficult and but moving at the same time and I was wondering how you were feeling when you heard that part of the podcast You know, the first thing I'm thinking about is like, you know, as reporters and journalists were, you know, don't get involved with the story and the subjects and remain impartial. But that's, you know, we all get involved and invested and care about the things that we're writing about or reporting on or researching. And it it really humanized Brian in a different way, because we're hearing, you know, he he really cared about John. And it, it sort of, to me, set up, because as I was saying before, I was wondering at the end of episode two, you know, how are we going to carry this story forward now? 
I think hearing Brian's just such a raw, real, honest reaction to John's death really conveyed, you know, how he he had come to feel about John as a friend and not just as somebody that he was interviewing and sort of to me explains why he wants to see this story carried forward perhaps, um, to the next step. And and it also, it was this window into these people that were around John the most and how they were like, we got to go find out about mama and take care of mama. And it just, it was, um, it, it was, it was a really honest conversation that normally I don't feel like we would have had such a direct line into. No, I agree with you. I think that the phone call with Skylar and then also the phone call with Tyler in this episode were very, very important, not just to really paint the full portrait of the people around John. I mean, I, we got a full portrait, especially of John's relationship with Tyler. And, you know, one of my all time favorite lines so far that, you know, Tyler knew that John was gay and didn't care that he had a little sugar in his tea. Uh, <laughs> um, but also there was a reason we know now for Brian to be at that funeral. You know, there was a mm-hmm. reason because I think that had we not heard really those full, rich conversations between Brian and these people, it would have been very easy to think like, here's an enterprising guy who's going to the funeral to kind of get some good tape <laughs> or something. But, but I would even say more importantly from being at the funeral is a big turn in the narrative, which is the arrival of the cousins. Yes. And if we didn't have all this tape to give us the big picture of... John saying over and over again how he wants to help Tyler. And, and there's all this tape of it. And then also everything this community is doing around Mama and John and that Tyler is like taking care of the dogs and wants to like go to the hospital. Then when the cousins enter, and I think in this episode, episode three, obviously there's a little bit of a shift in episode four, the cousins basically enter as outsider villains. Like it's like a Southern Gothic like... Scene setting that was like the not... Baudelaire orphans from a series of unfortunate <laughs> events. All of a sudden, Count Olaf swoops in. It's like, where did they come from? <laughs> but it wouldn't have been as effective without hearing the full breadth of those conversations. I don't. I don't think he's, he's had up all this time setting up. He loves Tyler like a son. He wants to take care of him. He dropped all these hints. We even though there's no will, we know what his desire we have is. Tape of it. We have tape of it, and then. Boom, there all of a sudden, there's the conflict. Not for nothing, but anyone else besides me think, like, Tyler wants to make a really good case. Like, Brian Reed's got all the tape. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was one, I, I'm wondering if that's where we're going. Now, uh, Laura, the, the entry of the cousins. I, I heard you making a lot of, like, uh, reactions over there when we were talking about the cousins. When, you know, enter the cousins, locking Tyler out of the house, showing up at the funeral, walking Mama into the funeral and not letting her talk to anybody. What do you think of this whole way the cousins were brought into the story? And then, you know, we hear Brian talk to them in episode four and like they don't allow themselves to be taped and they sort of tell an alternate version of events. What are you thinking about the cousins at this point? I was thinking you really just can't make this shit up. You know, when these people swoop in, I mean, this is what you hear about when people die. You hear about these people that show up that nobody's ever heard of and they lay claim to things and here it is really happening. Um, but all I wanted to interject, you know, I didn't have a lot to say about them other than that they, they clearly sound like the villains was just this this in, like visual that I had when I heard the description of them swooping into the funeral with Mama in either the Cadillac that they got out of. Yeah, it was Cadillac. And I was like, 
oh my god this is this is really like a movie or something like i mean this is like it doesn't even seem real to me at this point that this is really happening and that these people are getting away with this now toby one of the things we do learn in this episode we hear about tyler making john's tombstone the just john book (laughs) the book that tyler is reading his kids you know and we hear that john was gay and it's just kind of put out there and you know, Tyler, of course, has that funny thing about had some sugar in his tea. And we hear like anecdotes about John and Tyler. And how does it add to your feelings or perceptions about John when you get this other piece of information on top of everything else we've heard about him at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting I, I mean, I don't really know what to think other than I've met a fair number of gay men who grew up in the 80s in Alabama and they were not out. Right. You know, and so I don't I don't know when John came out, but never really. He's right. Half came out. He's half. Yeah, out. yeah. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> think he's walking around with the town knowing, but it, but his friends know it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I don't I don't think I have any insight or theory about it. You know, it's just another way in which he both was and sort of created a sort of persona for himself that was an outsider. Right. He must have had very, very conflicted feelings about the whole thing, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. But I would also imagine that, the, you know, he would wear people's contempt as a badge of honor right. type of thing. I think it also probably explains his high school experience, you know, describing his high school as Auschwitz, being an outsider from the start. He wasn't comfortable in his own skin and he was shunned and that probably played the college into professor's it. Uh, observation that's episode on. four which we'll get yeah. to oh, yeah sorry. yeah no it's fine no it's fine but you're right you're absolutely right um i want to just pause for a moment and talk about the breakout star of all of s-town at least thus far up through episode four uncle jimmy the one who got shot in the head yes who is to me i, I want to be sensitive about this because clearly we're talking about somebody with like a severe disability who was shot in the head who can't communicate who Brian Reed has to find a way to write around because he has this incredibly poignant tape of Tyler talking after John's funeral at his grandmother's house. And it is this really poignant scene where the cousins have arrived and they're talking about what John's intentions were. And, you know, these people are the he ones who to explain t- who's that in the background going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uncle Jimmy. You don't want to laugh. But it's very funny. It is, yeah. I'm sorry, it is. And it's made funny by Brian's very clever and not insensitive writing around it when he says- He doesn't make fun of it. No, he says, he says, Tyler says this as Uncle Jimmy confirms. Yeah. And then Tyler's talking in the background, Uncle Jimmy's going, yep, yeah. And it is a really- And he just has a story which is just, again, sort of typical shit town, right? Really shit town. During Mameth High, he breaks into someone's house and gets shot in the head. And now he's basically the Greek chorus of every conversation that everybody around him has, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I hope but we see Uncle Jimmy again. I really do. <laughs> I, I think that also points to living also in a very poor town. Yep. I haven't experienced this a lot myself, but I've read that in poor communities, you just have more people with injuries that they got on the job or, or however way. And there's just more people with limps or missing an arm or with brain damage, it added to kind of the picture of that town. Also of that family, because you didn't hear anyone on tape telling Uncle Jimmy to shut up or be quiet or he's part of the community and he's obviously cared for and he's part of the inner circle. And I think to me, it just adds more character to these characters, you know? Um, So Laura, one quick question for you before we move on to episode four. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Scale of one to 10, when you listen to this episode, how important is it that we all immediately go make sure we have a will? Um, You know what? It's something I have to say I've brought up several times since listening to this episode. Me too. (laughs) I was like, I was like, Oh, shit. I need to get my stuff together. It's it's very clear. If you have intentions and you die. See, this is the thing that, like, given John's, like, sort of care for these people and the fact that he was, it seemed like he was he was on the ball on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, you know, and he's, he's pre-written suicide notes. Right. Why the hell didn't he take five minutes and just be like, look, I'm leaving all this stuff to these guys? Well, one He of, has a lawyer named Boozer. He has a lawyer, and he also has a fantastic. town clerk. And he's told everyone he's going to commit suicide, apparently. he tells, yeah. We learned that again. in episode three. And, and he has a, a vision of what he wants his affairs to be like and after he's, he's gone. And he's written everything else down, and that's, but not this. But it, Maybe it's, it's hidden yeah. in the maze yeah. or the well, clock. But yeah, but you, he, you would think he would but have that filed that any, with Why Blizzard. would you hide it if you wanted some... I mean, it's just... I yeah. it's it's The other thing... This is what I forgot. I was going to mention this when we were talking about episode one, is that he does make a comment about how he wants to leave like 20, you know, 20 ounces of pounds gold, of gold yeah. flakes or something. Yep. And he says, you know, the cops will probably come and steal it. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of different reasons why he could have put that there. Mm-hmm. But then it does get you thinking later. He clearly doesn't trust that, that the people that you're supposed to be able to trust to impartially mm-hmm. deal with yep. your stuff are going to actually do that. Toby's right. right. I don't know how it, where it goes at the end of episode seven yet, but whatever the answer is, I bet there's already been a clue that's been dropped that we haven't realized. I agree. And, you know, when he mentions that in episode two and then episode four ends up with this question about somebody saying it is a town-wide conspiracy, you know, because Faye, the town clerk, who's, by the way, a super interesting character, inter- yeah. she's, she's, she's uh, introduced in episode three, she tells this unbelievably horrific story of being on the phone with John when he commits suicide. And you just think, oh, Faye, man, she's a stand-up person. She's just like all these other people around John. And then in episode four, on a KG scale, she goes from like a zero to like an eight, at least in terms of the way the narrative is laid out. Uh, Laura, what do you think about Faye? What do you think about Faye's narrative so far in, in, in these episodes in the podcast? This is like a real-life cozy murder mystery or something because I'm like ooh okay I'm definitely now getting suspicious of Faye because I'm like you know she says she didn't talk to this person she tells the cousins one thing she tells Brian another it may just be that she is in over her head and she's freaked out because she heard John kill himself on the phone or there, there could be something else going on but I feel like the way it's being set up so far is making me feel like we're being given like almost like suspects, uh, not suspects that have committed a crime, but sort of suspects, people in the story that are up to something that's not what they should be up to, or they're doing something behind the scenes that we don't yet know about, or they're connected to somebody in this story that we're not yet aware of. So I feel like the way it's being set up is definitely, you know, I, I need to know where she's going next. Now, one of the transitions, the big transitions for me, and I know that it was meant to be this way, so it wasn't just for me, was we have, up until episode four, been given a picture of John as a weird guy who lives in rural Alabama among a bunch of crazy people, and he's just trying to figure out how he can help, his place in the world, etc. And then in episode four, we find out that he's actually part of a broad network around the world And he is a world-renowned 
horologist, a.k.a. clockmaker, known to be the only person who can fix certain clocks and that he has deep friendships with intellectuals, like real, legit people that I think anybody in many circles of the world would be proud to know and call friends, and that he does have this expansive, worldly circle. That blew my goddamn mind, because it was the last thing I expected, especially after finding out that John had a chest full of tattoos and nipple rings and was, you know, sort of playing this two-handed thing, and you really had come to believe, like, maybe he's completely full of shit. That was the thing that, for me, really changed everything. After the suicide, to me, that was like the other shoe that dropped. Kevin, what did you think about that revelation? Well, I thought it was what was more interesting was the list of people to call, mm-hmm. and that none of the people at the top had been contacted. And so Brian's quest to meet these people, find out more about them, you know, it was kind of like strange and ominous at first. Who are these people? We already know that the cousins have come in. Why were these people never contacted? And then you find out like how wonderful they are and the wonderful relationships that they had with John. And you just continue to be more impressed with how rich his life was but also that he shared a lot of the same concerns and secrets with all these people. Yeah. And all these people suspect that he's got gold bars stashed away somewhere. And they also all suspect that he might be the victim of some sort of conspiracy and he, now. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which is, and that somebody is up to something. Right. Now, Toby, what did you think when you heard about all of these friends that, that John had around the world? Were you surprised like I was? Uh, yeah, I, I was definitely surprised. I mean, it, it kind of... <laughs> I ended up with this picture of like like all these sort of eccentric people in different parts of the world who are sort of united by their love of fixing clocks. It, it just seemed kind of neat. Like it seemed like you could make a, a a pretty good documentary film about like a convention of these guys getting together. <laughs> um, I think the other thing that kind of came out of it, and, I, and, and again, we haven't most likely in five, six and seven, you, you learn more about these relatives and stuff, but uh to a certain extent, I was trying to picture if he had gone in on this in a different way. Yep. So if he hadn't been talking to the guys who are at the tattoo parlor and stuff, and that the first thing that he'd done is started to talk to his clockmaker friends mm-hmm. and these relatives and stuff. And then it's the story more about, holy shit, this guy who was like this really accomplished clock guy and very smart. And, you know, he went to Birmingham Southern and all this stuff. And he hangs out with these like these sort Losers. of racist lowlifes, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Yep. And and then that's the story. It's like how how freaking weird is that? You know, he ended up with what he started off with, right? And I and who knows what's going to happen in in five, six, and seven? Again, we we haven't listened to it, but it seemed like when you when they start picking heroes and villains, the reason why you've got the heroes that you've got supposedly, although I would dispute this, but they're sort of the people who you're acquainted with are like, if you line them all up and just ask them to tell their stories briefly, are not the people you would pick. Right. And I do think that the end of episode four does cast some doubt on the heroes we think we have. That's kind of the 
I think the point of episode four is by the end of episode four, you wonder like, oh, wait, is Tyler actually the bad guy after all? Because we're hearing all these fun shenanigans about him digging holes on John's property and him going in under cover of night and like, stealing stuff, you know, taking back things. And then, you know, when Brian meets with the cousins, they're like, he's been nothing but trouble. Like, we have this and we have this. We have this Google image that shows that this stuff was there like long before he the dates on his receipts and, you know, plants the seed of doubt. Like, is Tyler full of shit? Like, you don't really know. To me, one of the most interesting things about the moral of episode three is basically shit town is not shit town after all. Look at all these people. Look at this community of people surrounding this person. He actually says that. Like, maybe shit town isn't so shitty. And then by the end of episode four, there's this conspiracy theory about maybe the town itself is a conspiracy out to get John. Um, Laura, the big thing that we're sort of dropped at the end of episode four, the big anvil that drops from the sky, is this revelation that Faye, we had heard that John had told her some stuff on the phone before he committed suicide, and then she tells Brian some of the stuff that he told her. One of the things she says is that John had said his gold bars were in the freezer wrapped with a towel. And that, of course, nobody can find the gold bars. There's no gold bars in the freezer wrapped with a towel. What do you think, Nancy Drew? What do you think is going on here? Okay, here's here's what I think. Here's what I think. I think that Faye and the cousins knew each other whenever it was decades ago when they were in town and they're in cahoots. I think there's got to be something going on. But I mean, that's that's much more exciting than it's probably going to be. I feel like what's happening here is that what we're see- we're going to see is in the course of the aftermath of John's suicide, we're going to see all the players and the characters in this town really illustrate what he was saying from the start when he first called Brian about this being a shit town. We're mm. going to see all these people display the behavior that disgusted him the entire time he lived there. What do you think, Kevin? When we heard that anvil drop about the gold bars in the freezer and all of a sudden Faye, wonderful, lovely Faye, is suddenly tight-lipped and sketchy and weird. And all of a sudden the cousins are casting doubt on Tyler's honesty and it's all this like maelstrom at the end. What do you think is going on here? Well, I do like that Brian, again, has twisted it up. And I, that's the thing. It's got to keep you guessing. You have to be, if, if you can guess where it's going to go at the end, um, then it's not really a great story. Right. And th- so the twists and turns are great. So I'm wondering, you know, again, if this were like a straight up fictional mystery, and I look at the suspects, the cousins are asking Brian and other people if they know where the money is. So it makes me wonder that, think that they don't. I would think that if Tyler had already taken the money, going back on the property and stealing things wouldn't be such a big deal. Right. He, he would let that go. Right. So it's like, who isn't looking for the money? The oh. person who has the money, if it exists, because we've been fucked with before. <laughs> yeah. If the money exists, who isn't looking for it? Right. Of the characters who've been laid out, I mean, there's Boozer, there's is it Faye? Yeah. You know, and, and and whoever else. But the tattoo shop guys, yeah. you know, the yeah. the lawyer, the cops. The, yeah, cops. the cops. I actually think that we haven't heard much about the cops in this podcast at all, except for at the very, very beginning of this podcast where we heard about the cops in this part of the world being very fucking corrupt. Uh-huh. So that could have been an anvil. Who knows? Maybe it was. Um, Toby, at this point in the podcast, you know, it is a maelstrom. Everything is up in the air. The things that we thought about people have now been thrown in the air on all sides. Faye, Tyler, the cousins, Boozer. Uncle Jimmy, I think, is the only person that nobody is like asking whether or not he, he might be a bad guy or a good guy. So, Toby, we are at the just over halfway point of our real time listening to S-Town. Everything's up in the air. 
at this point in the series, as a body of work, what letter grade would you be willing to assign and why? Yeah, I give it an A. It's been really well told. I think there's a lot of tough stuff going on that he's dealing with, uh, including around John's depression. And I think looking, you know, comparing this to Missing Richard Simmons, this is a much more um, respectful and compassionate Mm -hmm. take on it. So, you know, I've, I've got little quibbles here and there. But I, I think for the most part, it, it's really solid. And I think it, it takes on some difficult things and, and pulls them off very well. Now, Toby, I'm curious. You know, we hear that John told everybody all the time about his suicide plans, potentially. And everybody sort of was so used to that conversation with him. We hear that Brian read John's suicide note in his computer and really tried to get him to talk about it. And John kept changing the subject. Did you have mixed feelings when you heard that Brian had actually seen the suicide note? I, I was actually thinking about you when I heard that part of the podcast. You know, I don't I don't know. It's a little hard to tell without a lot of context of the conversations that he had with them at other times, I think. If, if something like that had happened to me and then and like John was kind of poo-pooing it, you know, my next thing would probably be to talk to talk to a couple of the people I thought were close to him and be like, what's the story with this? Do you know about this? And when they're like, oh, yeah, we've seen that, you know, he's been like this for years and years and years, you know, you probably recommend, you know, do you probably want to go and get some help? But you wouldn't necessarily be worried that something was imminent just because it's been going on for a long time. Right. No, I I agree with you. And I, you know, reporters don't have a responsibility to intervene. I actually have a responsibility to not intervene. And I think that Brian strikes a really good balance in the podcast, not pointing at his lack of intervention or his intervention, but just letting us hear the conversation that he had with John at the time, that he's had the suicide note. I think it was really, really well handled. I thought it was responsible. I don't think he or anybody in John's life actually believed that John was going to swallow a cup of cyanide the day that he did and commit suicide. I really don't believe that they thought that. And I think that if... They did. They would have be. They would, they would have behaved differently. So, um, I'm gonna uh, also give it a strong A. My strong feeling is that uh, Brian Reed has collected at this point a couple of years of tape. He could have put together any kind of story he wanted to. This is one of the best crafted narratives I've ever heard or just sort of seen put together out of just tape. It could have been anything. And this has taken so many turns and it's been so interesting. And it's just a devastatingly beautiful portrait of humanity so far. And I am loving it. So for me, it's a strong A. Laura Bricker, uh, a little more than halfway through the series, what letter grade do you assign S-Town and why? I'm going to go with A. I should have gone with A on the last one, too, but I'm trying to, you know. And I would say because I feel like, you know, this story is so compelling. But what we're seeing, I feel like what we're seeing is we're seeing it started out as we thought a true crime podcast, but what we're seeing is a nonfiction podcast really being told in a completely different way, almost like in this this very, you know, beautifully crafted narrative that's really almost like reading a novel. And I feel like we're seeing something new in the way that we're seeing and hearing something new. And it's, it's a really different kind of experience than listening to just a straightforward documentary style podcast or even reporting podcast because it's being told in such an artful way with the character development that we're seeing and the characters that we're getting to learn about. So I I will say A. Kevin? Uh, I'm giving it an A as well. I think the S in S-Town could be serendipity Uh because it is amazing that, you know, what started off as a false homicide investigation (laughs) turned out to be this crazy tale 
right. which is expertly told, I believe. It is like a Southern Gothic novel, and it is also something that that you can't believe actually happened. Right. So it's framed with just expert precision. I really love it. I really am glad that we are done with recording our podcast so I can immediately go to yes. episodes I cannot five, wait. six, and seven. I cannot wait. And finish I'm this pissed up. off that I have to edit this podcast so I can't actually immediately start listening to episode five. Yeah, yeah. And I was very moved by Brian's reaction to John's death. I thought that that was probably the emotional high point. And then, like, you have the anvil and everything like that. I still can imagine John just sort of, like you said, looking out his kitchen window, looking somewhere in his line of sight is that buried treasure. And he'd be able to see it, but no one would be able to see in if he had ordered from select blinds. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> if you ever feel like you had to choose between getting new blinds or digging up the bars of gold in your topiary <laughs> maze, those fears end now thanks to selectblinds.com. Right. Where they won't gouge you like those big, greedy corporations. Or those big, greedy cousins. Those greedy cousins. The first thing they would take would be the select blinds, of course. Yes. Just because select blinds means do it yourself doesn't mean you can do it alone. They have their specialists that will walk you through, measure, choose, install your new window coverings. They have over a million happy customers and 170,000 five-star reviews on their sites. So why not be one of these people who love their blinds from select blinds? Select blinds.com really is the simple and smart way to get blinds. So shop today at selectblinds.com. Mention our show at checkout and get sample swatches of the room darkening blinds or shades of your choice absolutely free. Selectblinds.com. Selectblinds.com. Mention Crime Writers on. Anything else? Yeah, you know, um, if I were to go to a funeral in Alabama, I probably would wear my nicest black (laughs) t-shirt. And your boots. My formal black t-shirt. Yeah. But unfortunately, I probably would be wearing one of those really bad tidy whiteies that came in the five-pack yeah. Yeah, from would. the store. I can actually confirm that you would definitely be wearing one of those. But now that I, ha- I have something that will change my life for the better. <gasps> Me undies! Yes. Yes. <laughs> Pray tell. So what is MeUndies? Just seriously soft, feel-good underwear that gets delivered right to your door. It's made with micro-modal. It's a fabric that's three times softer than cotton. Feels great on your tush and everything else you got going on down there. Like your Boo <laughs> Boku and Bokus and Bokus. You can save up to 33% each month with a monthly subscription to MeUndies. Or if you just want to try one pair, that's okay. MeUndies is offering... You 20% off your first pair because you like Crime Writers on. Yep. So use our special URL, meundies.com slash crime, and get 20% off your first pair. Go ahead, revamp your underwear drawer. You deserve it. Classic colors, bold shades, adventurous patterns. Panda panties. Panda panties. Why not? Once again, that's meundies.com slash crime, meundies.com slash crime. 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 And we've made it because we have MeUndies. I'll say it every time we read that ad. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the, the crime, crime of, of the, the century. Week. <laughs> the week, Kevin. The crime of the week. According to the Associated Press, a northern Idaho woman told police she crashed into a deer because she was distracted by a Sasquatch in her rearview mirror. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, usually we rewrite the copy. This copy was so good, I'm just reading the AP copy. Rip and read, that's what right, it's called, yep, right? Yep. The Moscow Pullman Daily News reports the 50-year-old Tenzed woman was driving south on U.S. Highway 95 on Wednesday when she struck a deer near Potlatch. 
I love the names of these places. The woman told Benoit County Sheriff officials that she saw a Sasquatch chasing a deer on the side of the road while driving. She says she checked one of her mirrors to get a second look at the beast, and when she looked up, the deer ran in front of her. Sheriff's officials marked the incident as vehicle versus deer collision and did not report any evidence of Bigfoot. Conspiracy! (laughs) So, Toby Ball, when you get pulled over, do you have a go-to favorite excuse to use with the cops? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Like most citizens, I just politely ask what happened, turn over my stuff. I wish I did. Now, Laura Bricker, your husband's a firefighter. I know he's not a cop. Yes. But you've got, you have to have heard stories in your time as a reporter or the wife of a fire chief about people giving great excuses to cop. What's the best one you've ever heard? I mean, usually you hear somebody who's like on the way to the hospital, somebody's dying, somebody's in labor. And there's there's actually a legal, de- you know, I've had cases where people have tried to use that as their defense. And, you know, you've had to go out and get medical records and things like that. I really can't think of anything really that exciting. It's usually, you know, something that you think that police officer will feel sympathy for. Do you have a go-to excuse, Laura? I never get pulled over, Rebecca. Oh. Not me. <laughs> and if I do, they're like, oh, we'll let you off with a warning. Yeah. You know who you are. Well, that's the thing is you live in small towns like we do. Yeah. You get pulled over by the same cop over and over again like I have. Love you, Officer Pecora. Shout out. And you just say like, I'm sorry. And like, you know, they know they're going to see you at the Cracker Barrel or the market. So like they're going to be nice. The Cracker Barrel? That's the name of our little town market. Not the restaurant. The Cracker Barrel. Oh. We have a little town market called Cracker Barrel in our town. Uh, no, but basically I'm like Toby. I don't have a go-to excuse. I just say, I'm sorry. What did I do? And, and swallow it. What about you, Kevin? Do you have a go-to excuse? Yeah, I say I was distracted, officer. I was uh, looking for Maura Murray. <laughs> I'm glad one of us had an answer to this one. <laughs> and have you ever actually seen Maura Murray in your uh, rearview mirror? No, but I've seen Sasquatch. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Look at the Maura Murray episode art. It actually does look like those Finding Bigfoot. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it really, really Gone does. Squatching. Well, they filmed an episode up there in that area. Of Finding the Bigfoot? Finding, they did, yes. Up in northern New Hampshire, like last year. Laura, have you ever watched Finding Bigfoot? I have, because my son is obsessed with Bigfoot and mm-hmm. thinks that like Bigfoot lives in the woods behind our house and has like memorized every Bigfoot sighting video there is. So yes, yeah, I have watched it. I was it. that way too. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah my, our kids went through like a big Finding Bigfoot phase and spoiler alert, they don't ever find fucking Bigfoot yeah. on that show. <laughs> One more season. <laughs> so we should probably end it on that note. We will return turn next week to talk about the final chapters of S-Town. I cannot wait to start listening. Sorry, listeners who have heard them and think that we are stupid for the things that we've said. Episodes 5, 6, and 7 will be the focus of our next podcast. Listeners, if you want to email us your S-Town thoughts or a voice memo about the podcast, you can send it to crimewriterson at gmail.com. You can also tweet us your questions and comments. Find us at Crime Writers On, or you can post them on our Facebook page. Just search for us there. If you want to hear more of our reactions to S-Town in real time as we all finally listened to episodes 5, 6, and 7, follow each of us on Twitter. Laura Bricker, what is your handle there? At Laura Bricker. And remind our listeners how you spell Laura, please. It's L-A-R-A. And Toby Ball, how can our listeners find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn? At Kevin P. Flynn. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And of course, refresh your feeds in a few days to catch more crime writers on Shit Town. Our show's theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. The handsome Henry Lavoie 
Lavoie is our line producer. We record in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. a closet in our basement where we promise there is no maze or gold to be found. On behalf of all the crime writers, we will catch you later. Are you guys ready? I am. I have really bad connection quality, and I don't understand why right now. Hold on. I'll be right back. I'll be right back. (laughs) I really want to hear a smack down in the background. (laughs) Ah. Everyone be quiet so we can listen. (laughs) I don't think he realizes that she's a private detective. Remember the scene in um, Christmas Story where you could hear over the telephone? It's like, who'd you learn the F word from? Mom calls Mrs. Schwartz. You hear in the background? Okay, I'm back. I don't know what's going on. Thanks again to Hunt a Killer for sponsoring the show today. Hunt a Killer is a murder mystery subscription box service that delivers new clues to your doorstep each and every month. Hunt a Killer puts your true crime sleuthing skills to the test and you don't even have to leave your house or, you know, know an actual killer. The stories unfold via creepy correspondence, things like letters, articles, objects and tools, all from a Hannibal Lecter type killer curator. Hmm. To help support our show, they've offered a 10% discount for listeners. Use the code WRITERS to get 10% off. So head on over to huntakiller.com and register right now. Come join the hunt. Huntakiller.com. Use the code WRITERS. Partners in Crime Media.